0: Coming up on this episode, we're getting real with American Ballet Theater principal dancer James Whiteside. He's going to be joining us and talking about his new memoir, Center, Center.
1: Welcome to episode 332 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of gay romance fiction. I'm Jeff and with me as always is my co-host and
0: husband, Will. Hello, Rainbow Romance readers. We are so glad that you could join us for another episode of the show. Before we get to this week's interview, I want to remind everyone that this month's book club pick is Running Lines by Jerris Jean. Jeff and I really love this terrific Hollywood romance, and we think you will too. The book club episode is going to be dropping on September 30th, the last day of the month, so there is still plenty of time to give this new author and this new series a try. I also want to quickly mention that a previous book club pick, Romancing the Rough Diamond, which we featured last May, is now available in audiobook. I'm going to continue to recommend all the books in this particular series. I loved every single one of them. There's Romancing the Rough Diamond, Romancing the Undercover Millionaire, Romancing the Ugly Duckling, and Romancing the Wrong Twin. As you might be able to guess from those titles, these are real trope-heavy, sweet and sexy romances written in the distinctive Claire London style where nice guys find themselves in utterly ridiculous situations and as they try to extricate themselves romantic hilarity ensues romancing the rough diamond is narrated by friend of the podcast Joel Leslie if you haven't yet sampled these romance classics by Claire London we hope that you'll
1: give them a try I've actually been thinking about going back to Romance in the Rough Diamond because I want to hear Joel do that book. I just mm. think he's going to be so good at it. He and Claire London already are a match made in heaven. This is not the first book he's done with her. Uh, I got to figure out how to get that into my reading schedule sooner than later. Yeah, like I said, all the books in this series are true
0: gems. And if you need a feel-good pick-me-up, this series will definitely do the trick.
1: So this week, we've got a little different interview than usual We mentioned recently that it's been a summer of memoir for us, and we could not pass up the chance to talk to James Whiteside when the opportunity presented itself. Here on the show, we are always talking about our theater experiences, including trips to see American Ballet Theater. So this interview is a great coming together of our love of books, our love of dance, of theater, and talking to writers and creatives. We've seen James perform a number of times and have been a fan for quite a while. And as we discussed when we reviewed Center Center back in episode 330, we really enjoyed reading about his life. We hope you enjoy our discussion with James as we find out how he chose the stories he wanted to tell for this memoir and how he balanced the happy, sad, and funny into a wonderfully compelling read. James, welcome to the podcast. It is really amazing to have you here.
2: I am so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
1: It's a wonderful intersection of the things that we talk about here on the podcast, even though you haven't written fiction.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, there might be some elements of fiction in the book, some fantasy elements, you know.
1: I I will be talking about your take on a musical as we kind of go through (laughs) some of this. So, But your memoir, your very first book, Center Center, just released in mid-August. Tell everybody about this book, as we can see here, Uh, that actually carries this tagline, a funny, sexy, sad, almost memoir of a boy in ballet.
2: Okay. This book has been 37 years in the making, and I wanted it to be a sort of full experience, not just ballet, because I'm a principal dancer with American Ballet Theater. I don't just want it to be about ballet. I wanted it to be sort of a human experience, you know, the coming out story. The dating, the friendships, the, the family, the losses, you know, everything rolled into a, a strange and interesting little package.
1: It's interesting you put it that way because not only are there your stories, there are some amazing illustrations in here too that just bring it more to life. How did the illustrations come to be a part of it?
2: I've always known I wanted to write a book. And then I actually read a book called Boy by Roald Dahl with beautiful illustrations. The, the book is a collection of stories from his childhood. It's like about school and his friends and blah, 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 whatever. And the illustrations are so fabulous. And I thought to myself, if I'm going to write something, I need really evocative, strange illustrations. I like the sort of almost grotesque nature of the illustrations in, in things like Alice in Wonderland and, and the Royal Doll books. So I had a friend of a friend and his name is Teddy O'Connor and he's an illustrator and uh, animator for Rick and Morty, which is an amazing adult comedy show on adult swim. And I said, I really want you to do this. Like I know you're super busy doing Rick and Morty and solar opposites for Hulu. And please, 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 please do the illustrations for my book. I know you'll crush it. And uh, the publisher was like, Oh, you have to use in-house Illustrators And I was like, no, absolutely not. I'm, I'm going to use Teddy, whether you like it or not. And Teddy finally agreed and just came up with the most grotesque, fantastic, beautiful illustrations for the book.
1: They are so amazing how they connect to the text. And for me, they reminded me of like Edward Gorey illustrations because of the very, the pen and ink kind of mm-hmm. nature of them a little exactly. bit. Really nice additions there. So I'm glad you fought for him to get there. Me too. You and me both. You call this an almost memoir. Why the almost on it?
2: I am not an old man. I am not, you know, close to death, hopefully. You never know. YOLO and all that. And I wanted it to have elements of fantasy in it and different ways of telling my story. So each chapter has like a little something extra and that could be in the form of like a you know a play or a sort of time warpy time jumpy kind of thing going on or even just complete nonsense like there are there are moments in which I just I I just prattle on about you know things like the back of a a falcon porn dvd for or like vhs from 1997 you know And they're all just little glimpses into my imagination, I suppose.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So there's a little maybe fictiony element that wanders through here a little bit, but all rooted in your life. Yes, absolutely. And there's such an array of stories. I mean, you talk about your early ballet times and how you became a principal dancer at ABT. There's a chapter on the pets that you've had, details on your parents, your boyfriends, as you kind of mentioned an airline experience from hell that I like both loved and was horrified by. (laughs) (laughs) What was your process to pick the stories from your life to build the narrative of the book?
2: I knew I wanted the book to be a non chronological collection of essays. So I essentially just looked at all the things I've done and things I've experienced and picked out experiences that would translate well to like a cute little story, basically. Like it it ranges from the death of my mother to like a really shitty travel experience, pardon my French. So I, I just wanted to explore things that I thought would translate well.
1: I always ask fiction writers what their favorite scene was to write. This is a very personal book. And so this could be like the worst, most unfair question ever. But is there something in here that really stands out as like a favorite scene or moment? I have
2: two. One is perhaps the scene of the death of my mother. And another is in the final chapter, the scene in which, how explicit can I get here? Like,
1: Extremely. It'd be as okay. explicit as you want.
2: <laughs> so the, In the last chapter, there's a scene in which, you know, in in my early 20s, my friends and I all went to the West Coast for a little, you know, friend trip. And we end up partying, et cetera, et cetera. And I painted a scene in which my friend and I were in a studio apartment watching our other friend have sex with this guy while we were eating Taco Bell, just like giggling at them. And that was really amusing for me to write about.
1: (laughs) And I think what you just talked about there really shows the true range of the stories that within a few pages, you're talking about this profound moment of the death of your mother and where you were in your life at that moment. And that's one of those moments where it really like clenched uh, my heart because of what you went through there. But then there's like this other uh, pretty ridiculous moment (laughs) happening. Mm -hmm you know, towards the end of the book. How did you decide the order in which to organize these very individual, very different essays?
2: Yeah. It's, I mean, it felt a lot like I had made an album of music and was trying to figure out the order of the songs. And the most important thing for me was to have the emotions flow properly. So I didn't want it to be, funny, 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 sad, sad, funny, funny, absurd, absurd. You know, like I wanted it to be like a natural flow from emotional atmosphere to emotional atmosphere. And I worked really hard with my editor Gretchen on the order, which in my opinion really should feel like the best playlist you can imagine.
1: I like how you connect that because you've also got your side as a musician where you're creating music. And so that piece of your creativity flows back over to the book.
2: It's all the same world. You know, it's all this art expression business. It's all part of the same brain.
1: (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that really struck me here is some of the time and attention that you gave to body image. And how you talk about that you don't have a ballet body and what is considered a typical ballet body and how you turn that into at least what to me read like is an advantage for you. And you even kind of adopted RuPaul's famous line around that. I really thought this was powerful. What do you hope readers pull away from that section as we're such a body obsessed culture?
2: I viewed myself as not having a suitable ballet body which i know now is complete and utter nonsense i had got it into my head that my knees were too bent and my feet were too flat my hips were turned in you know all these little nonsense things crept into my psyche and sort of hindered my confidence so as i got older and i learned more about what it is to be an artist and what actually matters and how it's the uniqueness of a person that makes you a memorable artist. I was like, oh, I absolutely have a suitable ballet body. I'm being insane and I have to use my brain to become a better dancer. You know, it's not an outside in thing, it's an inside out thing.
1: How do you think the young man that James was when he started going to the summer intensives would view the book that has manifested itself many years later? Oh my
2: gosh. I mean, I'm already feeling like heart palpitations from knowing that people are actually going to read this. I I wrote it ignoring that reality. And I cannot express how surprised I am by my own life at times. I look at the opportunities I get and, and the life I lead and I am. I, I don't know. I just can't believe how lucky I am. And I know it's trite and absurd, but I've always been a little delusional in a productive way. And I, while I had big dreams and big goals and all that stuff, I couldn't have predicted my own fortune. Yeah. I'm I'm really just thrilled.
1: <laughs> and I like how you keep presenting, I'll call them essentially life lessons for folks. I look at the the passage in there about as you initially were a, a principal dancer in Boston and how that transition over to ABT happened and you stood your ground that you weren't going to go backwards as opposed to just making the leap. And I think lessons like that are important for people to know that you don't just have to take something. You can actually strive for what you want too.
2: Yeah. It's, it's interesting to me. Like not a whole lot of people have read the book yet. In real time, it comes out tomorrow. And the people who have read it often mention that moment to me. It's so funny because I've never really considered it. It didn't feel like this big, I don't know, dramatic thing. And I'll just give you a quick overview of what happens. So I was a dancer with Boston Ballet for 10 years. I made it up to the rank of principal dancer And American Ballet Theatre in New York City was always my dream company, and I was having a wonderful career in Boston, but I wanted to audition for American Ballet Theatre. And so during a nutcracker season where we have, you know, one day off and it's really rigorous and wild performance schedule, I took the Fung Wah bus to New York City, slept on my brother's couch in the Lower East Side, woke up early went to ABT Studios in the Flatiron neighborhood of Manhattan and took a ballet class with the company in hopes that they would offer me a contract. I sent along my resume and my headshot and some videos of me dancing. And after the class, the director offered me a soloist contract in the company. I had already been a principal dancer with Boston Ballet and I was willing to take the soloist contract to go down a level to join my dream company in New York city. So I was thrilled. This was an amazing opportunity. I was so excited. I went back to Boston, finished the run of the Nutcracker. I got a call from the ABT director saying, listen, James, we cannot have you come as a soloist. How do you feel about coming as corps de ballet? Which is two ranks down from principal dancer. So I was a principal dancer going all the way back down to the base rank. It's like you're the CEO and then all of a sudden you're the intern. I was not thrilled and I said, I would think about it. And I called back and I said, I have worked really hard and I, I just can't, I can't do that. I'm disappointed and I'm sorry, but I just can't do it. And about 20 minutes later, the director called me back and said, all right, soloist it is. And that was that.
1: Yeah. Going for what you want. As a creative myself, you're always kind of worried about if I don't take this thing, I'm not going to get it again. And you think about that. And that's what made that so, to me, a ballsy move. It's like, good for you. I was cheering for you (laughs) as I read.
2: I didn't think it was going to work. I had accepted my fate of I will remain in my very comfortable place in Boston Ballet. I didn't know I was playing hardball. It felt definite, finite, and completely out of my control. So I was really surprised when I got a call back saying, all right, let's do this.
1: And now you are where you are, you know, Woo-hoo. gosh, seven or eight years later. Yeah. <laughs> One of the funniest moments and probably the funniest moment in the book for me is your flight from hell, <laughs> which you have turned into a Pussycat Dolls musical. <laughs>
2: <laughs> like two of the most nonsensical things you can say in a sentence.
1: Exactly. And it's going to influence any flight delay that I have probably for the rest of my life. How did that kind of coalesce in your creative brain to take, here's this really awful flight and I'm going to adapt it this way? Because in the book, it presents itself as a script.
2: The whole book is pretty experimental. Like I barely graduated high school, TBQH. So I have sort of an innate confidence and curiosity that allows me to do things that I should absolutely not be doing. And one is writing a play that will appear in a book that I've written. So I wanted, I don't even know why this happened. I was feeling particularly silly one day and I thought to myself, I want to write about this horrible flight experience in which I got stranded in Casablanca, which is the title of the chapter. And at the time, I, like the Pussycat Dolls, reunion song had just come out and I was like really vibing on it and I loved the music video and it's like just the gayest thing you've ever seen. I thought okay I want to write a play I want it to be a musical featuring Pussy Doll's songs woven throughout the narrative in an absurdist nonsensical way and I feel like it sort of works. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Totally does. And from my point of view, could this just be your next vanity project, please? <laughs> <stays this> <laughs> oh
2: my gosh. Could you imagine? I mean, just, I'm going to have Nicole Scherzinger call me and I'll say, well, do you want to make it?
1: Cause yeah. I mean, one of the other chapters in there too is about your vanity project. The trials and tribulations of, of putting that together. I think it's another look at how creative life can go in so many different ways. In this case, just making you very, very, very ill as you went along.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. That was trying.
1: You've got so many creative outlets. And in this book, you talk about James as dancer and choreographer, but you've also got JB Dubbs, the musician. And then there's Yuhu Betch, who is a drag queen, and now you've got writer James. How does it feel to have yet another side of you kind of out in public?
2: You know, it's so strange to cut these little pieces of me into separate entities. I I think I separated JB Dubs and Yuhu Betch from my ballet persona early on because I was scared of I don't know. I was scared it would negatively affect my ballet career and my ascension in the ballet world. And perhaps it did. It's hard to tell. People are really reluctant to just be outwardly hateful, you know, in, in a sort of explicit way when it comes to judgment. So I don't know, as I get older, I'm like, no, these are all, they're alter egos, but they're also just, they're just things I like to do. Call it a hobby, you know, and writing is just another way to express myself. It, it's innocuous and feels great. And I feel free to, to explore what I've got going on in my mind.
1: And it's interesting with the cover too, that I didn't realize until I actually held it cause you can't quite get it in the thumbnails on like Amazon. But this is you obviously in a dance position, but you're wearing this most amazing sparkly dress. Oh yeah. Which I adore. <laughs> You you can kind of see the melding of your personas even coming together in the book cover.
2: Can I talk about the book cover
1: for a second? Absolutely.
2: So there's this artist that I really like. His name is Daniel Clark and he's a digital painter. And I did not want to have just like a weird, strange photo of myself, like a super close up of my face on my book. I just couldn't do it. And I thought, you know, I want to have an artist do something for the cover. And so I contacted this artist, Daniel, and I said, I love your work. I would love to have you adapt a photo of me into a painting. And so he picked this great photo of me in this sparkly dress in a pair of Converse. And when he sent it to me and the publisher, we were like, yes, this is great. And then the cover designers did wonders with background color and font and everything. And I'm really happy with it.
1: Yeah, it's very distinctive and bold, and you know even the back cover where Sub might go with a standard headshot, of which there is actually one of you on the back flap, but then there's this other dance pose of you essentially naked. Did you he also do the back cover?
2: Yeah, the same back cover. Yep, and that's based on a photo that Mike Ruiz took uh, a couple of years ago.
1: Do you still? adopt your musician and drag personas. Now, I couldn't quite get that from the book. If these are still very active personas for you, even in, you know, 2021.
2: Oh, absolutely. So in 2020, I actually released an album of music as JB dubs. It's called Bodega Bouquet and it's as gay as the day is long and very fun and sexy. And as far as drag goes, let's see, what's the most recent drag. I mean, you can check out my Instagram to see one of my favorite drag characters that I do. Her name is Shannon Bobannon and she is a news anchor. And she reports on everything from, you know, the weather to, you know, what's going on in the news and does little exposes here and there, and she is pure nonsense.
1: We will find some of those and link them in our show notes so that people can go immediately.
2: Oh, um, you won't be sorry.
1: And you've added kind of another persona, I guess, now, because you are also voicing the audiobook for Center Center, which is yet another different performance experience. How was it for you actually recording the stories that you wrote?
2: Oh my gosh, it was so weird to be in a tiny room reading your own book aloud for hours a day. I don't know, it was, it was a very singular experience and I have a huge newfound respect for voice actors and narrators. Specifically the chapter, the Pussycat Dolls musical was so much fun, but a huge challenge for me. I am not a trained voice actor. I was just sort of going with what I had written and trying to make these characters really stand out. There were some really extreme characters in that story and I just wanted it to be fun. <laughs> for the listener, essentially. I had the best time working on that. And the producers and the director, they were great.
1: And it's interesting that you have now got this little bit of voice acting thing, because there's a few places in the book where you talk about the, I'll call it bizarre, for lack of a better term, the bizarre acting that ballet dancers do because of what's required in that performance art.
2: There's no speaking in ballet. So I'm telling a story, you know, a three-hour story without saying anything. It's body language. It's pantomime. It's truly strange by comparison to television and film. But I'm a huge fan of animated television. I love the comedies. I, I adore. I mean, I'm a huge fan of like Family Guy and BoJack Horseman and Bob's Burgers and The Simpsons. And uh, Rick and Morty, you know, uh, the list goes on. And I feel like maybe someday, somehow I would love to work on an animated television show as an actor or a writer or whatever.
1: Now, earlier this summer, you actually premiered your latest ballet piece called City of Women. Quite a beautiful piece that our listeners can actually catch on YouTube if they want as part of ABT's summer celebration, which runs through September 15th. You've worked on that for a few years now, including some workshops that happened. How does building a piece of choreography actually compare to the creative process of writing a book?
2: They feel like they come from the same well, but they're completely different processes. When I'm choreographing, I like to start with the music and an idea and sort of an atmosphere. And then I map out the music on paper. I have like a specific way of making notations uh, musically. And then in each section, I'll write down what I want to be happening during that section. And whether it's a solo with one person or if it's a group or what's happening pattern wise or step wise. And I do that throughout the whole piece of music and then start to build it with dancers in the space.
1: How much do you know from your notes to coming in with the dancers? Is that, would you uh, kind of equate that to your first draft, if you will, and then you're essentially editing it as you watch the dancers?
2: Yes, I absolutely make the piece in my head and then teach it to the dancers. And then once I teach it to the dancers, there's so much to polish and cut away and fine tune. It's really like the editing and proofreading process.
1: And except in this case, you are the editor and the writer in some ways.
2: Yeah, I'm doing everything. I think I prefer the book route where you have more eyes on it, more honest eyes. I was really just thrilled with the whole editing process. I was amazed by everyone's attention to detail.
1: Do you think you've got another book of some kind in you, whether it's memoir or perhaps fiction or something else?
2: Oh, absolutely. I would love to continue exploring essay collections. I would love to try my hand at a teen series uh, fiction. So perhaps you'll see that in the coming years.
1: Oh, that would be awesome. I love young adult fiction. It's one of like my passions just to see how stories are presented to young people. So yeah, that I I could just see that being really amazing. What do you hope people take away from Center Center?
2: Center Center for me is a, a book about expression and feeling seen. So when people finish this book, I hope their humanness feels acknowledged. I want people to feel emboldened to try to express themselves in new and exciting ways, to connect with people who are interested in similar things, to not be shy, to have confidence in the things and ways that they're expressing themselves. And most of all, I just want people to laugh and have a good time. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and have some Kleenex nearby too, because there are moments. Oh, Yeah. I actually, I really like what Misty Copeland gave you as a blurb that Center Center shows there's a place in the world for anyone who's ever felt lost, misunderstood or outrageously passionate. And I love the outrageously passionate emphasis there. Because I think we all tend to lose that a little bit as we're just kind of meandering through our lives, if you will.
2: <laughs> yeah. It takes a lot of courage to be outrageously passionate, and it's tough, and you need support and, and friends and family and, and the belief in yourself to do it.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, we always ask our guests for recommendations. What's something you've read or watched recently that our listeners should not miss?
2: I'm currently reading the fourth book in the Stormlight Archives, which is Brandon Sanderson's fantasy epic it is wonderful. It is very long as you know in the fantasy tradition. It truly is an epic. I'm loving that. I listened to Trevor Noah's audiobook called Born a Crime. Incredible. His narration is perfection.
1: And what's coming up for you next? Now that Center Center's out there, what do we have to look forward to in the coming months?
2: Well, American Ballet Theater will be returning to Lincoln Center for their fall season in October. So I hope all you listeners get your tickets and get your butts in those seats, because it's going to be a party once those shows get going.
1: Absolutely. Do you know what you might be dancing during that time?
2: Yes, yes. I'll be dancing Giselle, which is a beautiful full-length classical ballet. It's uh, perhaps my favorite, or at least in top three. And then we'll be doing some new works and ABT classics like Pillar of Fire.
1: Fantastic. Oh, I wish I could get to New York in October because Giselle, that's one of my favorites
2: as well. It's truly just exquisite. Yeah. If you haven't seen Giselle, get your butt into a ballet theater ASAP. It's truly exquisite. Yes, absolutely.
1: what's the best way for people to keep up with you online to know about future projects? You mentioned Instagram and so we'll definitely be linking to that.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I have an Instagram and a TikTok and my handle is Whiteside. And you can check out my website, jamesbwhiteside.com. You can find me on YouTube, just, you know, Google me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Google him and then he will magically appear on your screen and we'll put all that into the show notes so that people can easily click and find it too. James, thanks so much for spending some time with us and best of luck with Center Center.
2: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I hope everyone enjoys the book.
0: This episode's transcript is brought to you by our community on Patreon. If you'd like to read the conversation for yourself, simply head on over to the show notes page for this episode at BigKFictionPodcast.com. And don't forget, the show notes page also has links to everything that we've talked about in this episode.
1: And thanks again to James for coming on the show. I have to say, as many interviews as I've done for this show over the years, this had to be one of the most intimidating ones. Not only did I want to keep my fanboy side in check, but I'm so used to talking about fiction that I was a little freaked out deciding on how to ask questions about a memoir, since these are not made-up stories. These are stories out of James's actual life. He was a terrific guest, and I do think the interview turned out good but. As I was recording it, I was just hoping that I wouldn't make some horrific blunder with all of this. So yeah, a little behind the scenes there of the podcast for you. Meanwhile, as we said in our review, we highly recommend the book. And if you get the opportunity to see James perform, definitely take advantage of that because he is so stunning to watch.
0: All right. I think that'll do it for now. Coming up on Monday in episode 333, author and podcaster Brad
1: Shreve is going to be joining us. We've got a great conversation with Brad about the Queer Writers of Crime podcast, as well as his Mitch O'Reilly mystery series. On behalf of Jeff and myself, we
0: want to thank you so much for listening and we hope that you'll join us again soon for more discussions about the kind of stories we all love, the big gay fiction kind. Until then, keep turning those pages and keep reading. Big Gay Fiction Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more shows you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Production assistance by Tyson Greenan. Original theme music by Daryl Banner.